Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. Um, if I've never met you before, my name's Scott. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Madison, and it's a joy to have you all with us this morning. Um, when we engage with Jesus, or whether it's like in church, like right now, or on our own, maybe reading the Bible or anything, it's easy to have a lot of different ideas of what's happening or what we think is actually going on. So uh, some of us, maybe we feel like this is kind of like a class, like we're trying to be persuaded into some truth, uh, and so we're kind of coming here to learn and think about things. Maybe you think that this is primarily about getting help from church or from Jesus, so this is kind of like a clinic or it's like a place where you come to receive healing. Maybe you think the church and Christianity is just a really old scam, and because all we want is like your calendar and your money, so this is like a timeshare presentation, and you're like, honey, why did we agree to do this? Like, you know, you're, you're grinning through your teeth, but you're just waiting to leave and go to lunch. Um, I've thought all three of those things at different times in my life, so wherever you are this morning, it's totally cool. And I'm glad to tell you this is not a scam, okay? This isn't a timeshare presentation. And yes, Jesus is the truth. You are meant to be persuaded into him. And yes, Jesus is the great healer and restorer of all things. And so this is a place where you come to find healing. But I want to put forward to you this morning that whenever you engage with Jesus, whenever you get close to God, it's deeper than that. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, you are being called You're being called right now. Whenever you get close to him, you're being beckoned. You're being recruited into an adventure, into a new mission and a purpose for your life that is more exciting and deep and profound and eternal and meaningful than anything else in this world. And the calling to which you are being called requires your whole life and your whole person but it is worth your whole life and your whole person. So instead of thinking about this like a class or a clinic or something, which those are a lot of good analogies we can use, I want you to think of it like you're in a, a sign-up or a recruitment office. And behind it, there's a boat which will, is about to leave and take you on the most wild, fascinating, adventurous journey ever. And you can go at any time. There are places on the boat to take you on this journey. And I also want to suggest to you that deep down, this is what we long for. We long for a calling. Have you ever met somebody who has such a strong sense of calling? It's attractive. It's desirable. Um, we've joked about this before, but Ernest Shackleton was the British explorer at the turn of the 20th century who led this insanely harrowing, awful, but very exciting to read about journey to the South Pole back in the day when that was the thing. It's like, how deep can you go? into the polar extremes. And allegedly, he put this in the paper in London. This was his advertisement, and it has since become one of the most famous advertisements of all time. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, <laughs> honor and recognition, and event of success. That was it. And he was overwhelmed with the response. Didn't have enough places to take people who read that and went, yes. We long for a calling. 
I could give you so many other examples. I'm sure as you're thinking about it, you could give me ones too. Pop culture, art, books. We long for this. Jesus is the one who gives you the calling you were born for. I say that not as like somebody, because I'm supposed to say it because I'm a pastor. Literally, he is the one who calls you into the most meaningful purpose and mission for your life. Amen? All right, that's the sermon. We're good. We can go home. Just kidding. Um, in each of the four Gospels, Jesus begins the stories of the Gospels alone. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this. He begins with a calling, and he got his calling from the Father. So Jesus grows up knowing he has a job to do. But then, like Ernest Shackleton, in every single story of the Gospels, he gets to this point where he calls other people into his own mission and adventure. And this story this morning, love the Raphael painting on the front of your bulletin. Uh, we, don't, we can't afford high art, but we sure can't copy and paste that sucker onto our bulletin. So we're going to have an artistic experience, dadgummit. Um, but this is the story in Luke. It's the very beginning when, when Jesus calls people into his adventure and his calling for the first time. So in each story, you get an example of this. And I think in every single one, there's a shape to it. We've done this a couple times with stories in the Gospels where you can kind of see an arc to the story. And there's one here. And I think there are three parts to a calling into Jesus' calling. There's three parts to this engagement with Jesus where he calls you into something. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Sound good? Okay. I've tried to make them notable if you're a note taker. Number one, first part of the calling is this. An encounter with Jesus. An encounter with Jesus. Would you turn me, with me to your gospel reading? We're going to walk through it. Starting in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesenaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and by the way, Simon is Peter. Uh, his name is also Cephas later, which means Peter. It's very confusing to track what this guy's name is, but Simon, Peter, whatever, that's who this is. Um, and he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So here's the picture. Jesus, this rising rabbit, ra rabbi, is teaching, <laughs> rabbi, and he sees these salty dog fishermen, and they're just washing their nets. They just got back from their morning, and he's saying, hey, Peter, can I hop in your boat, and can we go out a little bit? And he's teaching from it. So Peter is sitting in the boat with Jesus, letting him teach the people. And he's like, yeah, whatever, rabbi, okay? Going on. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, hey, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, uh, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, just to stop here, I love this. I'm a fisherman, and I'm not a good fisherman, but I do love fishing, and I'm obsessed with fishing. And if you like fishing, you will know that a hallmark of fishing culture is people who aren't fishing tell people who are fishing what they should do. <laughs> head nods for those of you who are fishermen. You're fishing and somebody's like, hey, buddy, I'd put a spinnerbait on there, throw it over there. I catch fish all the times like that, you know. Of course, they never back it up, but they just lie and tell you what you do, and you're like, yeah, thanks a lot. There has to be some of that going on here. It's hard to read tone, but Jesus is a rabbi, for goodness sakes. Peter is like, this is his vocation. He is a fisherman, and Jesus tells him what to do. That would be like me looking like this, hopping on a shrimp boat in South Louisiana and being like, hey, guys, let me tell you what you should do. And they'd be like, all right, priest. Yeah, like get back to your, your, your day job. You know what I mean? 
But Peter obviously respects him. So he goes, well, that didn't work last night, and it hasn't, but whatever, we'll do it. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat, guys still on the shore, to come help them. And they came and filled both the boats and began to sink. When Jesus, the preacher, says this, it comes true. It's a miracle. That's why this is called the miraculous catch of fish. And this is a picture of absolute abundance. Things are breaking. Boats are sinking. It's so huge. They don't even know what to do with it. And Marissa was talking to me this week, like, why is this such a big deal? It's not that big of a deal. Marissa isn't as big of a fisherman as me and doesn't know how hard it is to catch fish. This is insane. I love that, that Jesus takes probably what had been such a source of stress and sweat and toil for these guys, right? Uh, if they're not bringing in fish, they're not, maybe people aren't eating, maybe people aren't getting paid, and Jesus just goes, and he just, absolute abundance. So this is a miracle. And this is the moment the fishermen encounter Jesus. Not just a teacher anymore, right? He was preaching. It was abstract. They were like, ah, oh, but whatever. Another religious guy coming through town. Not anymore. They realize they are standing in the presence of God. And this is the first step for all of us. We encounter God in a way that it's real. Remember what did God use for astrologers, people who studied the stars? Stars, right? I love the Gideon story, fascinating story Charlie read. It's like the miraculous barbecue, right? God uses something completely different. So it's different for all of us how he can do it, but this is essential. We encounter the living God in Jesus Christ. That's step number one. The second part is this, a change of heart. So number one, you encounter God. Number two, you have a change of heart. Let's look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This encounter with Jesus physically overwhelms him. Do you get the picture? He's falling down at the knees of Jesus but it also breaks in upon his inner being. It floods into Peter, and it changes his heart. You see, we all, whether it's conscious or not, we do have layers or defenses around our heart, and we put them there sometimes because of pain, sometimes because of protection or tact, but regardless, they are there. And we have them with one another. We protect ourselves, but we also have those with God. And when we engage with Jesus or Christianity, there are so many different things for every single one of us that stand in between us and how we engage with God. So some of us might put them up because maybe we're afraid of what God might ask of us. We're afraid to get too close to him because we're afraid what he might tell us. Some of, my, of us might have been hurt in religious settings before, and we don't want to experience that again. That's really legit. Um, some of us might be worried that he might convict us of something we're already kind of convicted of, but we don't want to give him the opportunity to shine a light on it. Some of us might hate some certain aspect of Christianity or theology that's attached to it, and so we shelter ourselves. 
Whatever, we, whatever it is, they are there. And sometimes we know they're there, sometimes we don't, but we weave them iron strong and we can convince ourselves that they're necessary. But it puts something in between us and God. We don't know much about Peter at this point. So a lot of this is conjecture. But he was in the boat and he just heard Jesus preach, right? He was just sitting there. And we do know this. Peter in verse 8, when he's falling to his knees, is different than Peter in verse 5 when he was like, yeah, whatever. Okay, sure, whatever you want. I'll, I'll throw the nets over the, the boat. Here's what I want you to see. Through this encounter with Jesus, God invades his heart. God pulverizes past all of his layers and defenses and gets right to his core. Whatever was standing in between Peter, who knows what Peter was like and what he was thinking. But all of that just evaporates from this encounter with God. His defenses are dismantled. And Peter falls to Jesus' knees, and he says the same two things that every single person in the Bible always says when they meet God or through history. And that is, number one, God is real and holy. Oh, Lord, he calls him immediately. And number two, I'm sinful and small. You're God, I'm not. There's a really famous story in the book of Isaiah when Isaiah, before he's called, sees God. His initial reaction is, woe is me. For I am unclean and I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. Same reaction. For all of us, this is the second part of what it means to engage with the calling of Jesus. First, you encounter him, but second, he floods into you. He floods past all your defenses. And some of us this morning have very conscious barriers. Um, you might have some of those that we just talked about. There might be some skepticism from church, which I totally get. There might be some things that you're trying to kind of keep away from God. Um, sometimes we, we have defenses that kind of act as a veneer, maybe to mask some deeper heart position of pride or greed or lust that we're not even ready to admit. But whatever reasons, they're there. Here's the good news this morning. This is the gospel. Are you ready to hear it? It's my joy to get to preach it to you. The grace of God is that he has the power to dismantle your defenses even when you can't or don't want him to. Isn't that good news? He loves you first. Nobody comes to God before God comes to you. Amen? Defenses, you, we suffer behind our defenses. We turn inward on ourselves. It keeps us from participating in the life of God and loving one another. And God dismantles them. He floods past them. He gets to your heart. We have a lot of uh, defenses that we have, but none of them are, I think, as strong as the Apostle Paul's. And we had this a little bit in our First Corinthians reading. He talks about, I'm the least of the apostles. I used to persecute the church. Paul hated Christianity and Jesus so much that he thought it shouldn't even be tolerated in the culture. He thought it should be completely wiped out because it was so wrong. Right? He hated it enough to hand people who were Christians over to death. Is anyone currently doing that? I know you probably wouldn't want to admit to that. My hunch is probably not. Guess what happened to Paul? He was walking on a road, and who did he encounter? Jesus. Guess what happened? Physically, he fell to his knees. 
He didn't start arguing about theology or politics. He didn't start debating with Jesus. All he had the courage to say was, who are you, Lord? That was it. So be encouraged this morning. I have experienced sitting in your, your seat, and I have literally felt almost physically things in between me and hearing the gospel. I know what that's like. I've done that for years. The gospel, brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you first. He has the power to get through that. You don't, but you can't get through those without first encountering the living God. Amen? That's the second part. But when your defenses are shocked, when you're blown through and God has your heart, you are open and beautifully vulnerable and exposed to hear the third thing. And that the third thing is the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus. Uh, verse 10b. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. That Greek word men can mean men and women. So you'll be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to land, what did they do? They left everything and followed him. I love the first response is don't be afraid. Every single angel, every time God meets somebody, they're terrified, right? Every single time. And every single time the first response is don't freak out. Don't worry. This massive power that you're encountering is good. It's full of love. It's not going to overwhelm you. It's for your good. So don't worry about, you know, it's a scary thing to feel vulnerable. Jesus is encouraging Peter, I think, in his vulnerability. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. But then the call comes. From now on, you will be fishing for people. This is the great Shackleton moment. So this is when he hears the call. And what is the call? Put shortly, Jesus is inviting Peter, like we said before, to come into and be a part of his great mission and calling. So Peter isn't getting a, a unique one. Everybody has a unique one in a way, but it's all the same. You're being called into the great task of Jesus. And what is the task of Jesus? What is his calling? To let him explain it for us. In Luke 19, later on in this book, Jesus says this. When he says son of man, he's referring to himself. He says the son of man came for what? To seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man came to find all of us who are dying and turning inward on ourselves behind our layers and defenses, things we put up between us and God. Jesus comes to obliterate them, to smash through them, to liberate us, and to shine light into our darkness. Amen? That's why he came, to find us suffering inside our layers and defenses. And that means that Jesus' calling is all about others. It's about people. It's about you. It's about me. Jesus' life is completely outward. It's selfless. Of all people who have ever lived, Jesus' life is the most flung outward and focused on other people. This all rises to a crescendo on the cross when Jesus lays down his life he gives everything, more than you and I can imagine, for us so that we might be freed from our sins and find new life in the resurrection. When Jesus says, from now on, Simon Peter, you used to work for Sons of Zebedee Fisherman, Inc., but not anymore. 
You're going to be catching men and women. He's calling Peter into that great drama and mission. And he's saying, whatever your life was centered on before, it's now centered on others. It's about other people. And it's about helping other people find salvation in the name of Jesus. This is a very 1999 reference, so forgive me. But if you've seen the movie The Matrix, uh, it's this story, which as you say it, it sounds really creepy and weird, and it kind of is creepy and weird. But basically, the human race becomes enslaved to artificial intelligence. And they're all plugged into this computer, and it's awful. And they don't know it. They think they're living normal life. But a group of people liberate people out of the matrix so they know the truth, okay? And what I love about the matrix is a story about the rescue of one person, this guy named Neo. And he gets taken out of it. And so he's freed and he's liberated. He sees the truth. But the story ends with Neo going back into the matrix to free other people. There's my matrix example, but it's a great one. And here's why I use it. That's exactly what Jesus does with us. That's exactly what he's calling Peter to do. In Jesus, this is important, you are always blessed to be a blessing. You're always healed to bring healing. You're always rescued to be a rescuer. There's nothing that God gives you that is not meant to flow through you to someone else. You are a conduit. You and I are all like, I don't know anything about electric stuff. I don't even know the word to use. But right, you have the thing that like is the conduit for the electricity to flow. Jesse, help me out, yeah, okay. Yes, you're a conductor, thank you. That's exactly what all of us are. We are conductors for the love and salvation of God. The Bible also uses the analogy of a cup. You are a cup to hold and pour out God's love and salvation. You aren't meant to hold it. Um, My brother, who some of you met last week, who preached here as a songwriter, and one of my favorite lines of his is, blessing is burden when it don't leave your hand. Blessing is burden when it don't leave your hand. In other words, anything God gives you that is financial, wealth, capital, relational wealth or capital, if you have a really healthy friend and family circle, social, cultural capital, if you're really skilled or strong or wise, all of it is meant to be given away. That's why Jesus gave it to you, so you could give it to other people. And when you don't give it away, it becomes a burden. You turn inward. You become like Gollum, sitting in a dark cave with the most powerful thing in the world and just petting it and just slowly disintegrating and becoming miserable. When people meet Jesus, when Jesus meets you, he ignites that in you. He's the one who kind of starts this fire to say, now start living your life for other people. Throw all those things away. Give everything you have to others. From now on, you'll be catching men and women. And he calls Jesus to do that, and he does that, and it changes the world. He becomes the rock on top of which the church is built upon. And one more thing about this. It is not service or helping for services and helping's sake. That can be a trap too. Doing good to feel good comes back to you and it still becomes an inward thing. This is giving yourself away in the name of something that is so much bigger than you. And so it allows you to still be so outward focused. For all Christians, this takes, this is where, this is kind of the brass tacks of this. For every single time you meet Jesus, this is meant to take first priority in your life over everything else. After you meet Jesus, this is your calling.
Everything else flows from it. Everything else is meant to serve it. And nothing is more eternal and deeply satisfying and joy-filled and adventurous. You might be a fisherman. Now you're a fisher of people. You might be an engineer. Now you're an engineer of restoration and salvation in the world in the name of Jesus. Isn't that a great title? You might be a lawyer. Now you're litigating for eternal justice and hope. You might be devoted right now to the raising of children, but now you are shaping eternal souls that you are sharpening like an arrow to shoot out into the world to transform it. God takes uniquely who you are and what you do, and he flings it and he flips it in his name, in his mission, to the world and for the world. Amen? Isn't that more exciting than just being a fisherman? And I love fishing. We could, uh, we could get into the technicalities of, does this mean that you need to quit your job? Does everybody have to be a missionary or a pastor or whatever? Like, there's a huge conversation here, and honestly, it can be nuanced to death, and I kind of started trying to this week, and at the end of it, Marissa was like, this is bad, you shouldn't say that. <laughs> and here's what I think I've really realized. I don't think it's necessary because there's a way that you can work any job, anything that you guys feel called to. There's a way that you can do that but have your first priority being for the sake of others in the name of God. And there's a way that you can be the most practicing Christian. You can even work for a church. Yes, you can be a pastor and still ultimately live for yourself. I am trusting the power of the Holy Spirit and his work in your life and his conviction for you to know the difference. I think if any of us reflect we will know who and what we are living for. doesn't matter what your job is. Some of you might be called to quit your jobs and go. That could happen. Some of you will be called to stay and do whatever you're doing. But for every single one of us, the call will be life-changing, super different. It will be a paradigm shift, and it will be glorious. But it will be just as big for all of us. So this is the shape of the call. You encounter God. He blows through you and he floods into your inner being. And then he takes you and you get called. You follow him. This happens all the time in the Bible and history. I talked about Isaiah. We talked about Moses. Think about Moses in the burning bush. After he encounters him, that's when God says, go down, Moses. Greatest book title of all time. Gideon. Um, this happens all the time. All the disciples have this experience. I had this experience. When I was a teenager, through reading the Bible with my friends, I encountered Jesus. Looked different than this, but I did, and he flooded inside of me. And all I wanted to do after that was follow him and help other people find the same thing that I found, or at least was revealed to me. Notice the order of these three things. This is very important. Without all three of these things and in any other order, this would be crazy, right? If Jesus just found guys who were fishing and said, follow me and leave everything and catch people, they'd be like, you're insane. If that was just forced on you, that would be forced religion or tyranny. That would be awful. But in this order, it is beautiful and simple logic, right? If you encounter the living God, and see that he is greater and more precious and that he is in the business of saving the world. 
to not follow him and be a part of that would be foolish. Of course you'd want to. Of course you would do what Peter and all the, the fishermen did. They dropped everything. I want to be a part of this now. So all that means, if this order is important, then what's crucial? The first one, right? Encountering God, which is why our commitments, the main things that you want to be putting energy towards right now in your faith is encountering him. Your change of heart flows from that. Your call and the things you do flow from that. Sometimes we can focus on the latter two. That ends up being just legalism and awful, and you don't want to go to churches that focus on that. We're focused on encountering God, and you're doing that right now. Whenever you engage with his word, you're encountering him. At his table in the second half of our service, we're going to be encountering him. We encounter him in prayer with one another through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He is amongst us. So if you want to know, how do I encounter God? Keep on coming to church. Go to Bible study. Be a part of this, of what we're doing. This is how God meets us. I want to finish uh, just with a story where all these things are at play. And uh, some of you guys know these people, but some of our close friends, they were a part of our church before. Um, they're from Wisconsin and Minnesota, and they're obsessed. This is my favorite story of this whole scene. They're obsessed with the Northwoods, and uh, they're super passionate about it. They're the kind of people who spent two weeks in the wilderness on their honeymoon, living out of canoe and like eating rice, they're like those types of folks. And they moved to Grand Marais, Minnesota, which if you know Minnesota kind of hooks to the right over Lake Superior. And Grand Marais is like right here. So it's like Boundary Waters and, and Grand Marais. And they lived their dream life. And my favorite thing about these people was watching how passionate they were and how much they loved the land. Never known anybody who had a closer connection to the land than these people. Uh, they built yurts. Uh, my favorite story is my friend built a flintlock rifle from scratch, shot a deer, they ate the food, and then he made moccasins for his wife out of the deer skins. True story. But this fascinating thing happened uh, a couple years ago. And before I say that, I, I always, because of how obsessed they were, I always encourage them to, to dive into it. Like, you guys live the dream, man. Build the yurt. Be by yourself in the woods. Like, nobody else gets to do that, and you can't, and that's how God made you. So, like, yeah, do it. But this fascinating thing happened a couple years ago where they, as a family, encountered the living God. They met Jesus. They were Christians before that point. Just because you've met him once doesn't mean you can't meet her in deeper and profound ways for the rest of your life, right? There was this new inbreaking of God into their family, into their living room and at their dinner table. And at that point, their life changed entirely. Their goals changed. Their priorities changed. Uh, they had two daughters, and up to that point, it was all fly rods and building yurts and flint blocks and carving things out of wood and everything. But after this, all of that lost its luster in a way. It didn't become less precious to them, but it just wasn't as important as this new thing that God was doing in their life. And it was fascinating. I was hanging out with my friend when all of this was happening, and he was talking about how shocked he was uh, about how much he was realizing that he is building or had been building their life around themselves completely. They were the focus of their own life. And here's a direct quote from him, which really sucker punched me. He said, where was the church when I was building my life around the Northwoods and myself? Nobody ever rebuked me. Nobody ever stopped me. I took that personally because I was probably one of the ones who was like, dude, go do your thing. 
be yourself. And at first, they stayed where they, they were and their priorities shifted. He was a math teacher at a public high school, and he, was, he became a math teacher of souls or of eternal restoration. He started loving kids so much. He was the most popular teacher, and people engaged with Jesus because of him. He did that in such a meaningful way. And then after a while, their heart opened up and broke so much for the world that they ended up moving to Laos with their two little girls where they serve at a university. He's still a teacher vocationally, and they spend their time spreading the good news to people. I share that story because I was personally challenged by it, and I am a pastor. Do you guys know it's possible to be a pastor and still live for yourself? You need to know that. It's very easy, okay? So people don't get off the hook just because you work for a Christian organization. I was shocked because I had never seen somebody be so obsessed with something and then be so filled with joy to leave it. It messed me up. I also personally was rebuked by him for that, you know, that that's stayed with me. Where was the church? You know, it's like, dude, do your thing. And he was like, no, you're being an enabler of my own self-centeredness. <laughs> Stop doing that. The lesson is not that the Northwoods are bad. The lesson is not that living your dream is bad. The things God has given you to love are so amazing, whatever vocation. The point is, it's not as sweet and as beautiful and as meaningful and as powerful as the calling of Jesus. It's just an order. So don't pity them in Laos, right? Don't think, oh, that's a shame. They could have spent their dream life and now they're just living for Jesus. Sounds super boring. No. We should envy them, right? They're wealthy. They're satisfied in ways that some of us will never know. That calling is so sweet. God opens you up and he invites you into it and it is just better. And your life could look the same. You could go to work the same ways, but it is a different mission of opening yourself up to God and saying yes. We are at a certain phase in our church plant where many of us are kind of following Jesus and man, you can't engage with him long before you hear him calling you. It's impossible to come close to his heat and not hear and be a part of the adventure and be called into it. So know that that's happening to all of us. It's always happening. God is always calling us deeper and deeper into his life and into the service of others. I pray that our community would be one where we are hearing and responding like Peter. We're dropping our nets. We're saying, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Sign me up. Amen? Jesus says, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men and women. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.